I wanted to make a quick correction. I had um, told Cindy to announce that we're going to have a work day on the 17th. It came to my attention that we actually have an activity on the 17th for the ladies. Uh, Larry and I were here late last night working on a plumbing issue, and we said, we need to, we need to take care of um, a work day here. And so we looked at the calendar. It looked like an open weekend, and it was the Awana Carnival the week before that. So we thought that'd be a great time for it. But um, we'll have something coming up in the... Um, Info lines. If you'd be watching for that announcement, we'll probably push it uh, to the last week of April. Um, so keep that in mind, and we'd love to have you participate with us. I have a couple of prayer requests I'd just like to bring to your attention as we go to our, our Lord and, and, and pray for our time in the Word. Uh, I was talking to Trevor yesterday and his uncle. Um, uh, as he, We've been praying for one of his uncles, and uh, he's still going through treatment, but one of his other uncles has had some issues before with cancer. Uh, has esophageal cancer and uh, has been put on hospice. And so let's be praying for Trevor's family as they, as they go through this time. Also continue to play f- pray for little Miss Wren. For those of you that follow um, Jean and Mary Long uh, in Thailand, uh, they've been ministering to one of the girls from their village, and she's been going through chemotherapy now for the last several months. And uh, they were really concerned for her this last week, but they, they got her blood count, and um, she's going to be able to go ahead and go forward with the next set of treatments. And so that's a, that's a praise. Uh, but um, this little girl, has, uh, she's a fighter, but uh, has a long battle ahead of her. So uh, if you don't follow Jean Mary Long on Facebook, uh, they give frequent updates and um, would encourage you to do that there. But let's pray for little Miss Wren. She's on the other side of the world, but our God is king, and he hears our prayers from here and everywhere, and he can take care of those problems um, even if we're not close by. So let's lift those up to our God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we are just so grateful that we have the freedom to come and, and, um, and, and, and study your word together, to worship you together. We, we thank you that we have freedom in Christ, that we are free from our sins. And though we are not free from its presence yet, we are free from its power. And it's only able to be accomplished because Jesus is the King, because Jesus is God. And so on this Palm Sunday, we do worship you. We worship Jesus as our King. And while we wait for the earthly reality that He will reign in Jerusalem, reign over this world, we we know that You rule in our hearts today and that He is our King. And so I pray that our hearts would be a reflection of the attitude that was shown there on that first Palm Sunday when the people cast down their palm branches before, before Him. I pray that You would lead us in worship. I pray that You would lead us in studying Your Word. I pray that You'd lead us and that Your Spirit would would guide us as we apply these truths to our lives. Might it be done so in a way that would honor Jesus Christ as our King. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, seven years ago, there was a a remarkable story that was appeared in Time Magazine written by Jeffrey Kluger. He began that dead is dead, except when it isn't. And he told the story of Walter Williams, age 78, from Lexington, Mississippi. He woke up kicking, very much alive. The problem was that Walter woke up in a body bag in the morgue. You see, on February 28, 2014, Walter had suffered a cardiac episode. His pacemaker had sputtered. And and when his family called in his death, the coroner came to check his pulse, and he declared Walter dead at 9 p.m. at home. Williams was ziplocked and taken away in a hearse. And then just a few hours later, the workers were preparing to embalm Walter when he gave them the surprise of their life and he started kicking inside the body bag. 
They rushed him to the hospital where he cared for, and he was cared for. He was stabilized. Apparently, the coroner hadn't read the manual on how to declare a dead person really dead. About 2.30, family members called one another and said, Not yet! I said, What do you mean, not yet? Daddy's still here. Not yet. Walter Williams did pass away a second time a couple weeks later, but his, his family had a, a great, uh, a very thankful couple extra weeks that they were able to spend some extra time with him. They said they were very grateful for that. But you know, some people are, are just not prepared to go when it seems like it's their time to go. When we, go to turn, when we turn to Matthew chapter 26 this morning, however, we find just the opposite of that. Jesus knew exactly when it was going to be His time for His death. The Bible teaches us an amazing truth. His death was prepared before the foundations of the world. Before God said, let there be light. Before He created Adam in the garden, before they ever sinned, God had had a plan that He had prepared because He had foreknown that we would sin and we would have need of a Savior. Peter declared it this way several years after Jesus' death and the resurrection. He said, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for the sake of you. God had established it. God was prepared to die in the person of Jesus Christ. He was prepared to die for us before He had even formed us from the dust of the earth. Not only this, but Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So all of time, all of history, God in the three persons of the Trinity sovereignly and patiently planned the death of the Son so that you and I might have eternal life so that we might be redeemed out of our bondage to sin so this morning turn with me to matthew chapter 26 today is palm sunday it's a day when the church around the world celebrates jesus triumphal entry into jerusalem he rode in the city on a donkey and the people cast down palm branches as a as a carpet for the messiah who was entering and offering himself as the king and the people recognized him as the prince as the king and this morning, we turn to a passage that takes place on the evening of that Tuesday, just, just two days later. Jesus' death was a death that He knew was imminent. He knew that the same people that had, had, had poured out their palm branches, poured out their palm branches, can you pour out a palm branch? That they placed their palm branches on the road. Those same people that threw their palm branches before Him were some of the same people that were going to call out for His death less than a week later. But He knew that it was imminent. He knew that it was a death that was planned by enemies, but it was a death that they could not control. It was a death that was prepared for by by his. Uh, it was a death that was prepared for by his most grateful followers, and a death that was prepared on a road paved with treachery and betrayal. But as we're going to see, this death was prepared in such a timely manner that it demands one of two responses from you. 
As we look at Matthew chapter 26, watch for the contrasts that, that presents that choice. First of all, we see a contrast between what Jesus prepared to do and what the leaders of His day plotted to do. Observe verses 1 and 2 as Matthew lays out the setting which leads us to the road of the cross. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, you know, after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so Matthew begins this, the context of this entire passage in this contrast following a sermon that Jesus had given. It was more of a lesson for His disciples. They were out on the Mount of Olives. It was a busy day. He had gone to the temple that morning. He, had, um, he cleansed the temple. If you remember, he overturned the tables. He overturned uh, the money changers' booths. And so he caused a bit of a ruckus in Jerusalem, right there on the temple grounds. After they were finished with these things, they went up onto the mountain and, and Jesus taught them everything you see in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. It was a lesson about things to come. It was a lesson about uh, what was going to come in days of tribulation. And and as the disciples sat there, they looked at the, the sun setting on, on this beautiful temple area. They said, Jesus, look, look how beautiful Jerusalem is. Look how beautiful this temple is. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you that not one of these stones is going to stand on one another very shortly. And so He told them about these events and told them about events to come and told them about His coming. And so it's in that context that Matthew says after he finished saying all these things, it's a common phrase that he uses after all five of Jesus' discourses throughout Matthew. But this one contains a specific pronoun that makes a very distinct shift in his Gospel. He has all these events that have led up to this moment and now Jesus is going to prepare His disciples for what is about to come in the next couple days. And so He says, you know. You know that the Passover is coming. It was head knowledge. They knew what the calendar looked like. They knew how many days of the week. They knew when the sun set, that a new day began. And they knew that the Passover was coming in two days. didn't know was the specifics of what was going to come with that. And so Jesus fills them in on the rest of the story. And so there's this clear focus on the Passover, but Jesus knew that he had come to, he had come to do, and then Passover was the time in which he would do it. Jesus was the Passover lamb that had uh, been pointed to since the first time it was celebrated when they were leaving Egypt. All these years, thousands of years, hundreds of years for the nation of Israel, his death had been pictured in the celebrations of this day. And this day had been appointed before the foundations of the universe had ever been laid. And so, understand that for Jesus, there's no surprise here. He's planned this. He knows exactly what's coming. And, and He's leading Himself and His disciples to that moment. He knew exactly what He was prepared for and prepared to do and when He would do it on that coming Friday. But notice the contrast between Jesus' intentions and the plotting of, of the leaders. The text goes on and says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they said, not during the feast. Not during the feast. That, that's the Passover. Lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, what Jesus had planned, the chief priests and the elders plotted. 
Note that what God has planned from the foundation of the world and what Jesus had been preparing for His disciples for, the Jewish leaders, they did so while they were gathered together in, in the high priest's palace. And it's at this time that John tells us that the high priest declared uh, prophetically without knowing it, he said, it, it is better for one man to die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And so they plotted. They didn't know where Jesus was, was going to be. A lot of them didn't know what Jesus looked like. There were, no, there were no Google images. There was no tracking devices. He didn't have a cell phone in his pocket that they could pounce down on him at the right moment. Uh, there was no mug shots, no wanted posters, no Robin Hood for uh, you know, this much money. No newspapers. And so a lot of these guys probably didn't even know what Jesus looked like. They, they knew of His teachings. Some of them had encountered Him. But, but there was no picture that they could be walking down the street and go, oh, hey, there He is. Um, and, so, and they didn't know what His schedule was going to be. And so throughout um, this Passion Week, everything was on Jesus' terms. Everything happened according to His timing, even though they're saying, no, we're not, we're not going to do it over the Passover. Let's wait till after Friday. Let's wait till everybody's left after Sunday and after the Sabbath and, and after the, the feast is over, then, then we'll take care of all this. They, they wanted to arrest Him, probably put Him in prison and then, and then kill Him after these things. But Jesus had a different plan that was different from what they planned. So an order had been given that anyone that should see Jesus, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. But what Jesus openly declared to His disciples the Pharisees and the scribes had to do as they gathered in secret. Jesus told His disciples at least three times. And He told them clearly that He was going to be crucified. He knew how He was going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And He told them on the way to Jerusalem. He told them when they were down in Jericho, if I remember correctly. He told them again at the Mount of, at the Mount of Olives in the Olivet Discourse. He's telling them again here. Matthew borrows the word from, from Mark that they, they plotted by stealth. Jesus was very open about it, but the, the religious leaders, they had to do everything by, by secret. And, only, and Matthew only uses that word here in his Gospel, but, but what it does is, is it implies deceit. It implies that everything was being done in a shifty, quiet sort of way that was deceitful. Something that had to be done under the cover of, of secrecy. But notice also the contrast between Jesus' determined purpose with their fear. It's, they did so because uh, what Jesus was preparing w with determined purpose, they were preparing in fear. Each of the leaders knew that if Jesus were to be declared the king of Israel, if the political zealots had their way and overthrew the Roman government, then, then their positions and their authority were going to be, going to be lost. Think, think about what happened just the day before. Jesus came into Jerusalem. He comes to the temple and, and he, he drives the money changers out. He calls out the, the uh, religious leaders publicly. He, he rebukes them. And so they know that, that Jesus is not on, on their side. And so their job included a careful balance. On, on one side, Jesus had already questioned their authority and, and He had publicly rebuked them from, for their hypocrisy and their false leadership. And, and so they determined that this, this teacher from Galilee, he, he had to go. Because the people loved Him. But on the other hand, timing was everything. Josephus later recorded that, that there were a lot of revolts that took place in Jerusalem. They were trying to topple the Roman Empire. And these Roman revolts were a frequent occurrence, but almost always they took place 
over the Passover week. And so, so this was just a heightened time of, of political, um, for political zealots. And so the, the religious leaders knew that Jesus had to go, according to their perspective, but it had to be done in a way that it wouldn't incite a revolt and, and, and cause problems with the Roman Empire. And people were already talking about Jesus. Everyone wondered if He was going to show up, and, and many wanted to make Him their King. Even the disciples did. So the Jewish leaders, they met together in order to arrest Jesus. They did it in secret, but their plan was to put Him to death after the feast because they didn't want to cause a riot among the people. Now Matthew presents a stark contrast between what Jesus had prepared to do from the start and what the religious leaders were plotting to do in secret. Each had their purposes, but what the leaders were not prepared for was that God had prepared all of this before the foundations of the world. And Jesus' timing was going to overcome and there was nothing that the chief priests and the elders could do about it. So there's already this clear contrast between Jesus' preparation for the timing of His death and the plotting of the leaders in Jerusalem. But now our passage, what it does is it's going to zoom in. It takes us from from this situations going on in Jerusalem, very publicly, among the crowds, among the leaders, and, and, and this secret conversation they had in their room, uh, but, but the public intrigue. And it's going to zoom in and it's going to take us close up into a dinner party that they shared that night. Let's look, continue as we look through the text. Because sandwiched between the, the account of the plotting of the chief priests and the elders... Uh, uh, excuse me, the plotting of the chief priests and the elders, sandwiched between that and the betrayal of Judas, we find this beautiful account of a woman who loved Jesus. And she made a public demonstration of that which has been, commemora- been commemorated in all four of the Gospels and has been told around the world wherever the message of Jesus Christ has been read. Look, look with me starting in verse 6. He says, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster mask of very expensive, very expensive ointment. And she poured it out on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare for my funeral. Truly, I say to you, Wherever the Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Walk with me through this passage together. Matthew Matthew's not particular about the chronology. Uh, so you yeah, understand that sometimes with the Gospel, they're going to jump around from, from day to day or even different periods of Jesus' ministry. Um, he's not very particular about his chronology. And so he takes this event that's gonna hap- that actually happened four days earlier and, and he sets it in contrast because he, 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 wants, he wants us to see how different this woman's response is from the religious leaders and, and from Judas. And so he sets this gem right in between these other two passages and, and he tells us that, that this was in Bethany. It was in the house of a man named Simon whom apparently um, Jesus had healed at an earlier time. 
We learn from the other Gospels that Simon was a Pharisee. And then um, there, there were at least 17 at this dinner. We know that, that Jesus was there, Simon was there, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and then the 12 apostles. Uh, others might have been present as well. Uh, but additionally, Martha had prepared the meal uh, and she was busy as usual. But Matthew tells us that a woman came to Jesus. He doesn't mention her name. He doesn't tell us who this is. We're told by John uh, that this was actually Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus who Jesus had raised from the dead recently. Simon the Pharisee, he had, he had some history on this girl. According to Luke, uh, apparently she was a, a sinner. A, a euphemism for that kind of girl. But it may have been in this context that she had experienced that inc- the incredible grace of our Lord. And it might have been, perhaps, through her restoration that the entire family, that that's how they became so close to Jesus. We, we don't know the details, but what we do know is that Lazarus and his sisters were incredibly close friends of Jesus. And whereas Mark tells us that, that she came to Jesus, Matthew emphasizes that she drew near. She drew near. She approached him. And when she did so, she took about a pound of pure nard and and she poured it out over Jesus' head before she proceeded to wash his feet with her tears and then wiped his feet with her hair. Nard was a costly perfume that was imported from India. Uh, The plant from which the oils are derived uh, come from the mountains of Tibet and Nepal. And John tells us that the alabaster jar with its ointment inside of it would have been able to have been sold for about 300 denarii. I did some, um, did some counting and calculating. Uh, it may be hard for us to, to think of off the top of our heads, but it, but it works out to be about 10 months' wages for the common person. 10 months' wages. Think about what you could make in 10 months. For the average person in 2021, that would come down to about $42,000 if you live in the United States of America. And so in our currency, in our culture, she just took the bottle and the disciples understood the importance of taking care of the poor. And so they laid into her. They just let her have it. Specifically, Judas, we're told later uh, elsewhere, he, he was the one who led the scolding. But at first, at first there was probably kind of that awkward silence. You ever been there? Been in the room when somebody says something or somebody does something and everybody's just kind of looking around like, Brent Cuby, wow. <laughs> really? Nobody's going to call him out and say his name or anything, but you know, it, it was really awkward and we're all kind of looking at each other. Sorry, I didn't ask you if I could pick on you, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? And you only get ice cream if you're one of my kids or my wife. So, you know, so it starts out with that awkward, you know, eh. and then it kind of proceeds to uh, maybe some whispers. Then hushed tones. Simon wasn't so concerned about the wasted money, he was more concerned about the kind of woman that was touching Jesus. And she, he was concerned that obviously Jesus was ignorant of what kind of woman this was. But, but the Gospel tells us that Jesus knew. He knew Mary. He knew who she was. He knew all things. And what He knew was that what the woman had done was 
beautiful. You see, the, the poor and the needy, they, they need our attention and they need our care. They needed the disciples' care. But, but Jesus exhorted them that, that they were always going to have the poor. Always. Everywhere. He would soon be gone from their presence and what, what she had done, whether she knew it or not, was she had prepared Jesus for His burial. What she had done was an act of absolutely true and utter worship. In fact, her demonstration of Jesus' worth was so profound and so beautiful that Jesus told them that wherever the Gospel goes forth, that this story was going to be preached. This story of this woman was going to be told. And this is one of the only stories that you're going to find in all four Gospels. Uh, you don't find very many accounts of Jesus' miracles and Jesus' sermons that appear in all four. There's some. But, but her story appears in Matthew and Mark, Luke, and John. Wherever the Gospel goes forth, people hear about this woman and what she did. But note the stark contrast between the worth that this woman placed on Jesus. Catch that. The worth that Mary placed on Jesus as she drew near is placed in stark contrast to the disciples who departed from Jesus. Then one of the twelve, verse 14, whose name was Judas Iscariot. You've heard of him before. You know Judas. He went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he saw an opportunity to betray him. We're not told exactly what went through Judas's mind. But we do know that from, from putting the pieces together, that, that Judas had been raiding the money box. Jesus had trusted him with, to be the treasurer. Jesus knew what was going on, but, but he was the treasurer for the disciples. And he was raiding the money box, pilfering for himself and um, out of their shared purse. But not only this, but it seems that Judas probably had some ulterior motives for following Jesus. You see, whereas Jesus had, had been declaring that the kingdom was not of this world, many of his disciples had, had a different plan. They, they heard him say it, but there were still intentions among the twelve disciples and among those who followed Jesus that they were going to... to make him king by force. That even if Jesus didn't see it, he had to be the king. And so there's going to come a time where they were going to put him into this position. And so, uh, whereas he had declared that his kingdom was not of this world, many of his disciples intended to declare Jesus king by force. And they wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And certainly, Judas was one of them. And, and he, saw, he saw the benefit of, of being one of Jesus' inner circle when that time came. I mean, when Jesus becomes king of Jerusalem, king over Israel and you're one of his 12 best buds, you got to know that things are kind of lined up nicely for you. But now, what's Jesus been talking about? Not only my kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, what else has been Jesus been saying? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be crucified? I'm going to die? And in no uncertain terms, Jesus has announced these things and He's made it known to His disciples. He's let them know some of the specifics. And now earlier, the, um, well actually later on, uh, from from this perspective, it's going to tell them it's going to happen on Passover. It's going to happen on, on on Passover Day. And so there's not going to be an overthrow. There's not going to be an immediate kingdom on earth. No riches. No fame for the disciples. In fact, Jesus said, "If they hate me, they're going to hate you." 
That's not what Judas signed up for. Add to that that Jesus publicly rebuked him in front of the other disciples, in front of Simon the, um, the, the Pharisee, in front of the woman who had wasted all this. And, and, and he was just seeking the interest of the poor. I mean, he was just trying to do what was best for everybody. And Jesus calls him out. When obviously it was the woman who had wasted so much. And so he decided to look for uh, if you want to call it a severance package. Things weren't working out quite like what he expected to. And so for four months' wages, he would deliver Jesus over to the chief priests. Note the different contrasts here as well. Note, note with me the contrast that Matthew draws between this woman, Mary, as we learn elsewhere, and this disciple who is one of Jesus' most closest friends. The two words which Matthew uses to draw a great contrast between someone who desires... Uh, he, he, he notes one who desires to approach Him. She drew near. That's how he describes the one to whom He had shown mercy and, and He gave her new life. And, and she was one who, who desired to just love Jesus. To do anything she could for Him. She poured it all out. Drawing near is how one who loves Jesus and wants to come close to Him is described as. But Judas, he departed. Note the contrast and examine your own heart. Is Jesus of infinite value to you and worth sacrificing everything? Or is Jesus just a means of getting the most out of the present, this present life? and what He can offer in this temporary world. Matthew explains that she had something and she poured it out. She gave it all. Judas approached the priest and he asked, what will you give me? And the specific term that he uses is, is a term of generosity. Okay? Normally when a person used the word that Judas used, it was a word that expressed generosity to someone. But, but Judas twists that word. He, he uses it for his own benefit. The term he uses, he, he, uh, it, it's used of demonstrating great benefit for another person. And, but what Judas does is he says, how will you be generous to me? She poured out what she had. He sought for himself. She poured out a large sum. Enough for her to probably buy herself a, a nice looking chariot ride. Maybe a, a BMW of the first century. Judas sold Jesus for about $16,000. Again, four months' wages. Incidentally, 30 pieces of silver was also the price listed in Deuteronomy for the price of a slave. If an ox gored another man's slave, the cost that he was to pay was 30 pieces of silver. So she sacrificed. He wanted severance. Hers was an act of beauty. His was an opportunity for treachery. She was a, a former lady of the night, it seems. But the act that she did on Jesus' behalf in preparation for His burial was a thing of incredible beauty. Judas was one of the closest, most trusted of Jesus' inner circle. And for the price of a slave, he committed one of the most heinous acts of treachery known among men. And finally, 
Hers was an act that was proclaimed in her memory. His was a plan that's equated, that has forever equated his name with betrayal itself. Her deed, it was, it was met with, with scoffing and mockery. What a, what a waste. What a waste. But, but Jesus sets her loving sacrifice and, and He takes it for the gem that it was and He sets it as a model for all of us. This, this is what true worship looks like. She prepared His body for burial before His death a week later. And Judas had made His name infamous so that the very mention of His name is a figure of speech that we use for betrayal today. Where are you and I at today? Where are you? His death was prepared before the foundations of the world and it was prepared for your redemption. For your adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. It was prepared for such a, ti- for such a timely manner that demands one of two responses from you. Will you worship or will you waste? You've been created to reflect His glory. It's your purpose in life. It is why God created you. It is why you exist. You exist to reflect the magnificence of your God. So how are we doing today? Do you know Him? Or are you just acquainted with Him? Are you spending time with Him? How often do you communicate and talk with Him like you would a friend? You may not have a spare container of pure nard to pour out on His head. You might not have a BMW or the price equivalent to sacrificially offer up. But do you sacrifice yourself daily? Do you walk in obedience rather than live by the flesh? And to each one of us, He's entrusted with us the same amount of time. Not one of you has more time than the other this week. We're all given the same amount of seconds, the same amount of minutes. And so how have you spent this last week? How will you spend this next week? So, so often I, I hear, you know, we, I, t- I talk with people about reading God's Word. It's like, it's like feeding yourself. Uh, you, don't, you don't starve yourself and say, oh, I, just, I just don't have enough time to eat. I, I'm so busy right now, I'm just going to skip breakfast, lunch, and dinner for, for three or four days. Uh, we, we don't do that normally, do we? You recognize that your body has needs, and so you, you take care of those needs. And we, need, we have those same needs spiritually. But how many of us say, ah, you know, I, I don't need to spend time in God's Word today. I don't need to spend time with Him. And so often I, I hear people say, well, Pastor, I, I just don't have time. I'm so busy. I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to memorize God's Word. I don't, I don't have any spare time. And my response is, why, why is Jesus getting your spare time? Why is He getting the leftovers? If He gets so little, then something else needs to go. Warren Wiersbe wrote in his commentary on Matthew regarding this passage and this woman's sacrifice, nothing given to Jesus in love is ever wasted 
Her act of worship not only brought joy to the heart of Jesus and fragrance to the house, but also blessing to the whole world. Her devotion encourages us to love and serve Christ with our very best. Such service brings blessing to others that perhaps we will know nothing about until we see Him. My friends, 2021 is slipping by us. We will gather here again next week to worship and, and, and many people will, will go from one week to the next without giving Jesus another thought until they get up next Sunday morning. But will you draw near? Will we draw near or will we depart because Jesus doesn't offer us the temporary comforts that we truly value? What are we going to do with this next week? What will we sacrifice daily? What will we give Him? Our King who died for us. Will we waste? Or will we worship? Jesus, we thank You for the story of this woman who, who gave so much. She loved You so much. And, and in a demonstration that seemed silly, that seemed wasteful, that seemed ridiculous to so many she she gave everything and she worshiped you i pray that that you would teach us to know that kind of worship i pray that you would teach us to know jesus like she knew jesus to see all that he had had given all that he was and might our lives be poured out in devotion in the same way that this woman poured out that nard. We love You. We recognize You as King. And in our struggle with daily life, in our struggle with the flesh, it is my prayer that Your Spirit would convict us, would teach us, would lead us, would comfort and encourage us as we go through this week. As we're mindful of your son's death on the cross and his resurrection that we celebrate through this week. It's my prayer, Father, that you would, you would teach us to love him with all of our heart. And might this week be lived out in worship, never wasted. Amen. Please stand.